0: Welcome, lacrosse fans, to the 11th episode of the Utah Lacrosse Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Haslam, the current sports information director for the Utah men's lacrosse team. The team is coming off a historic win over BYU last Thursday. The Utes used a 7-0 run in the second quarter to propel them to a 16-8 win over BYU. Here are Coach Holman's thoughts after the game.
1: Uh, big, big emotional game. What, what did you tell the team after? Uh, I, I just told them what, what most people would say. They're, obviously, we're very proud of them. Um, but honestly, Tim, I just, I just said, look, you know, this is part of who we are now, right? So, so you know, I'm not trying to downplay the game, but I, I don't think we were upplaying the game. Sure. So, you know, I, we have so much respect for their program, and that was really the big key for us is, is can we play with the big boys? Uh, and I think tonight we proved that we can. What does that mean? I don't know, but that's what I told them. So we crossed another mountain, right? And that's been our theme now for a while. Um, and I just told them how proud I was of them, and I thought they played a really good brand of Utah lacrosse.
0: Uh, you know, with the win, it secures the number one seed heading into the RMLC playoffs. Regular season champs. Um, what, what are you telling the team around that kind of message?
1: We'll talk about it tomorrow. I told them tonight they just should enjoy this. Uh, we're going for a hike at 6:45 tomorrow. Uh, when we get up in the mountains, we'll, we'll have a little sit down and, and we'll talk about what's next. But. It isn't really going to change, right? You know, we, for every game this season, it's just been, all right, now we're moving on to the next one. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk about how do we want to handle the situation, but I, I don't know. I, I don't you know, I don't sure. think it's going to change a whole lot,
0: right? What, uh, what were some of the surprises out of the game? You know, maybe it was a, a group or a, a certain play or anything like
1: that. I just, as you know, I don't like to talk about individuals, but I, I just – the stance that we made defensively in the third quarter, and you probably know this, but I think it was five minutes, maybe six minutes. I thought that said a lot about us as a team. They had the ball for five to six minutes. They had shots. They got rebounds. I mean, we played defense for five or six minutes. So I think, I think that shows a, a, a lot. And so, so that stuck out probably more than anything the whole night.
0: The team will enter the RMLC playoffs this week as the number one seed and will face the number four seed Colorado State on Friday at four at UVU. This week's guest is the main man at Inside Lacrosse, Terry Foy. As publisher, Foy oversees everything about the business from content to ads to subscriptions and more. Foy started at IL as an intern more than a decade ago. A Cleveland native, Foy graduated from Loyola University, Maryland in 2007. During his tenure at inside lacrosse the magazine has won six folio medals for excellence in editorial and design traffic to InsideLacrosse.com increased to more than 50 million annual page views moving forward foy looks to continue shaping il's industry-leading lacrosse coverage develop new products in the digital and social media space and provide new event opportunities throughout the sport hope you enjoy
2: Welcome to the show, Terry. How are you? Very
3: good. Thanks for having me, Tim.
2: Yeah, thanks for coming on. And I know you're a busy guy, so I appreciate you taking some time out to, to join the Utah Lacrosse podcast. Typically, you're on the other end of this uh, this format, so hopefully this uh, this is fun for you.
3: Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, I know that we've been trying to do this for, what, like six weeks now. So uh, I think in the, in the meantime, you guys have reeled off like 11 wins, so the conversation can even be more <laughs> Vivacious than uh, it might have been in I don't know mid February or whenever it was that we first got
2: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We know a little bit more about ourselves uh, at this point, but you know, obviously, coming off the, the BYU win uh, last week, uh, did you get a chance to see the results of that game? What What were some of your thoughts there?
3: Yeah, sure did. Congrats, first of all. I mean, you know, I know how important that rivalry is uh, to you know members of the Utah athletics family, Utah lacrosse specifically, and you know, clearly. Uh, the Cougars have been among the class of the MCLA for more than a decade, and me- the meaningfulness uh, of of that win is not lost. I mean particularly because you know, when I look at Utah Lacrosse on a two year scope, I think that for uh, let's call them the College Lacrosse elitists who think that there is this enormous <laughs> gap between NCAA and MCLA Lacrosse, the presumption was that you inject a coaching staff. Uh, of the quality that you know Brian Holman has built. and immediately the results follow. And I think there were some that were surprised by you know a, a first round tournament exit last year um, because they expected this immediate turnover. And I don't I think that the progress in year two shows the potential, but also the fact that it's not a foregone conclusion. You've got to do the work uh, in order to get better. and I think that a win over BYU to you know kind of punctuate the end of the regular season, uh, certainly solidifies that um, and makes people understand a little bit better, you know, what the bar is, how you need to perform in order to pass it, as well as where Utah Lacrosse is on this progression right now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you hit it spot on. You know, we uh, we are obviously very excited about the BYU win, or excited about an undefeated season. But at the same time, there's uh, internally we talk about mountains to climb, right? And uh the, the RMLC playoffs are just the next mountain and then followed by that the the MCLA tournament. So yeah, I, I uh super exciting win, big big win for the program obviously the first time but still uh still a lot of work to do. What's uh talking about kind of a season of the whole or what are some of the things that
3: that you've recognized about this team that that might impress you? Well, it's interesting because for any division 1 startup, for lack of a better word, and, and understanding that Utah was not that. You guys have upperclassmen that contribute, but you know, the places on the field that you can make an immediate impact as a freshman, in goal, facing off particularly, you know, tend to be just deciding factors in terms of the rate of progress. And so, um, you know, the fact that you're saving the ball at 60%, you've got three guys that are winning at at, at above 60% at the face-off, all of whom are freshmen, uh, you know, that that speaks, I think, directly to uh, the types of, you know, kind of incremental progress that can be made, particularly when you bring in a big group uh, that is investing in something that is very unknown and uh, is excited around the opportunity that that holds. And so that's kind of what I see first. And then, you know, the thing uh, that continues to emerge, just, you know, not being able to watch every game, kind of mostly consuming through highlights and checking out box scores and stuff like that is, you know, Josh Stout is a bona fide scorer. And I think, uh, you know, having, a an attackman that you can rely on for consistency like that is such a calming and, and you know, kind of uh, it gives so much peace of mind, I think, to the the staff in terms of how they prepare as well as, you know, to the team in general in terms of knowing you know, if not necessarily we're going to go to this guy in every high leverage situation at the very least we know that the opponent is paying attention to him defensively and a lot of things can kind of build off of that as well.
2: Yeah, you, you know, you mentioned Josh Stout and being that consistent. A lot of people, uh, locally know this, but maybe not nationally, but he and, uh, Bubba Fairman were, uh, you know, the top two, uh, recruits coming out of Utah and they, they played club together for years. Yep. So, you know, Josh certainly, certainly, uh, has learned from Bubba's example and, and I would argue vice versa, you know, so, um, definitely, definitely fun to see Josh performing out there. Um, you kind of have a, a special friendship with Coach Holman. Uh, you know, uh, Coach Holman has talked to me about you and, and sort of how you see things uh, kind of differently and you, you're really capable of seeing the big picture. But talk about, you know, when was the first time you met Coach Holman and, and kind of how has this friendship
3: blossomed? Sure. Well, it's interesting because, and I think this is something that he would be uh, proud to have associated with him, but my relationship with him is derivative of his children. I got to know Marcus first um, he did his senior project, I guess is the lack of a better word to describe it. Uh, when he was a, a senior at Gilman uh, in high school, he, you know, as a lot of high schools do, they engage for a you know, two, three week kind of professional opportunity. And, and he, uh, as well as two players that went on to play at Harvard, Harry Krieger and Jack Doyle, and then um, another not quite as accomplished lacrosse player by the name of Ty Zanders, uh, that quartet came into our office. Marcus's senior year and I remember you know at this point I had become pretty familiar with him as a player um, and I remember there were some doubts around how what type of career he was going to have at Carolina primarily because he wasn't very big and this was one of the and, and I will be that will be very candid in saying that one of the doubters with whom I engaged in conversation consistently not just Uh, when he was a senior in high school, but also into his college career, was with Quinn Kesnick, And I remember advocating for Marcus as a successful college player, because even in that, that, you know, small group setting, um, Marcus's leadership and his ability to uh, focus on getting stuff done uh, was immediately apparent. And uh, so, you know, I always kind of had a special fondness for him um, watching him in the role that I occupied inside the cross uh, as he developed as a player. And I remember in 2013 when uh, they played Denver in the quarterfinals in Indianapolis holding very ardently, you know, to that point, North Carolina had developed their uh, streak of losing in the quarterfinals. And, you know, it had been so long since they had gotten back to the Final Four. I believe it had been 20 years since 1993. And I remember saying, you know, I tend to fall on history's side, meaning uh, I will let history be my guide. I'd rather be late to a, to a story than early, so to speak. Um, and so, I, I, you know, other people were very bullish on that Carolina team. And, and I was like, well, I'm, you know, wait and see. Uh, that had been my point of view up until 2012. And, and for me, I thought Marcus represented a, a type of mental toughness that was going to, you know, potentially be enough to get over the threshold. Now, didn't happen. Um, but, it, uh, but it, you know, it, it did kind of then portend what came three years later, um, which was probably the typifying moment of my relationship with, um, with Brian. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't want to move on without mentioning that, you know, have, have gotten to know Matt and Sydney a little bit as well. Um, but on the field, after North Carolina won the national championship in 2016, I interviewed Brian, and and right before I spoke to him, um, you know, I made a comment about what it must have been like to experience that and, you know, have it offset by, you know, what your daughter is experiencing as well, you know, as a player who had torn her ACL as a senior and and won a national championship, I mean, just the the whirlwind of emotions. And I think that that was, you know, a moment that that both of us will remember for a very long time um, because, you know, fast forward, well, at that point, I was probably about two weeks into... Having heard the rumors of the prospect of varsity lacrosse at Utah um, and actually had spoken to a uh, another division one head coach um, who had been contacted, you know, Dom Starge made his comments public about how he had been contacted by, uh, you know, representatives from the program. Um, and and I had spoken to another guy, in fact, uh, who had had a conversation as well. Um and and so, you know, as the momentum started to pick up in the subsequent weeks and, and ultimately, you know, I guess it was about six weeks later that uh, that first Black Sports Network report came out uh, that brought a lot of publicity to this, um, you know, in conjunction with with Brian ultimately accepting the job. Um you know, was able to kind of continue the communication, and I think that you know was a very high-profile platform uh, for what you know you mentioned has has gone on to become a, a pretty nice friendship that that uh, you know I, I I hold pretty dear.
2: Sure, you know, and, and I mean, even transitioning into that topic, uh, you know, there was the cover, you profiled us on the cover last summer. Yep, um, I guess maybe September. Yep, um, you know, and, and you profiled the program there, and then also coming out of that was kind of a a conversation you had with Pac-12 commissioner, Larry Scott. Um, so, so I guess, I guess in your opinion, you know, you mentioned from the championship game you're on the field with uh, coach of the championship game for North Carolina, all the way to kind of that cover, you know, what, what were some of your thoughts? What were, you know, what were you, th- um, what was kind of going through your head during that process? And then kind of how did, how did that cover come to, to fruition and sort of your conversation
3: with Larry Scott? Sure. Um, well, let me take one step back, which uh, I'm struggling to remember what year this was. Um, I think it was after, you know, it would have been December of, of 2016. So it was after a lot of rumor around the program had uh, developed, but before any type of formal finality had come to the situation, I was pretty pretty fortunate to be invited to um, just a quick meeting uh, with Larry Scott. Um, Paul carcaterra was there, and uh, and I think it's you know fair now to say um, Sean Bratches, who is a Ro- Rochester Institute of Technology RIT uh, lacrosse alum, um, who had been a VP at ESPN and is now um, helping to run Formula One. Uh, he Facilitated the conversation, and I remember not. I remember walking into it not knowing what the the meeting was about or what I was going to to discuss, and and I remember walking away from it, uh, kind of feeling like it, it was weird. It was it was it was a two way street in the sense that I, you know, Paul and I were, were primarily responsible for singing lacrosse's praises, um, you know, telling the Pac twelve commissioner this is what we see as kind of the value proposition, um, for your members, but then also really benefiting from, you know, hearing from him. And this was, you know, what a lot of, we discussed on the record about eight months later, um, which was the notion of, of why it was appealing to the PAC 12 or why it was appealing to him and why he was advocating for, for, you know, women's lacrosse primarily because that was coming sooner. And then men's lacrosse on the heels, um, and and so it was really eye-opening, and I think coming away from that meeting I was fortunate in the sense that it helped to create some subtext. You know, I wasn't going to, you know, betray a off-the-record conversation, but it was going to inform the way in which I was able to talk about this concept in the abstract, um and how real it could be. And uh, you know, a couple of things more directly Related to this topic, you know, the first is, um, obviously the, the role of a, for lack of a better term, active benefactor, which is what David Nealman represents to Utah lacrosse okay. and active
2: is, active is an uh, understatement, <laughs> but, <go ahead.
3: laughs> but it's also not to overstate or understate, I suppose, the, the role of other people who are involved, you know, right. in the way that, um, one man can be a catalyst or one family can be a catalyst. Um, It requires the, the, you know, buy-in of what is the the donor base up to now in the, you know, it was approaching, you know, it was definitely over 500 last I heard, maybe it was in the 700s in terms of active, active members of the Utah lacrosse donor base. Is that, do you have an update for me there?
2: Yeah, that's, uh, that's accurate.
3: Yeah. So, you know, that level of buy-in literally, buy-in is essential to generating attention internally um, and and externally. And I think that uh, that's one of the stories being told, uh, you know, within the PAC 12 conference to its members. Um, It's something that I've experienced in pretty much every division one men's lacrosse announcement, uh, which is, I think now either 14 or 15 that I've covered since I've been at inside lacrosse, you know, by way of example, um, the Hampton, you know, we broke news on Hampton A. men's Cross. And I remember, uh, you know, I, I, I came into that story by uh, talking to a couple of Division I men's coaches who had been contacted by members of the athletic department about prospective scheduling. And it was, you know, that story developed over the course of like two days um, in May of, of, I believe, 15 And, uh, or maybe it was 14. God, the years run together. I apologize. But in any case, um, you know, when that news broke, I think Hampton was overwhelmed by the amount of interest and excitement around it. And then obviously it culminated with the Sports Center on on site um, and all of the uh, production around their inaugural game. Um, And I I use that as an example to say, you know, college administrators, athletic administrators tend to be surprised by how much avidness. Uh, men 's lacrosse fans or lacrosse fans generally have for their sport, and so um, again that 's one of the stories that 's being told. I think most would assume that lacrosse has a strong backbone of people who are financially willing to help make programs become a reality, um, but oftentimes they can 't do it on their own, and they need uh, the show of support from uh, you know the remainder of the community that doesn 't necessarily have the extent of means that some of these Active catalysts represent, um, but certainly have, uh, you know, passion and are willing to do what they can to support it. And I think um, what you've seen in the inaugural season of Pac 12 Women's Lacrosse, in terms of their conference having so much parity, uh, you know, the teams beating up on each other, as well as the, uh, you know, a top end of the conference you know, consistently being ranked in the top 20. Um, No no team having the season that USC had last year, but uh, a couple of teams that have bounced in and out um, is a really strong indication and show of what is capable. And I think that there's tremendous value in that as well.
2: I mean, along those lines, uh, you know, a couple couple different questions. The first would be, you know, what was your reaction when you heard Oh, uh, that Utah would be the team <clears throat> coming out of the Pac-12 first, uh, and then well, yeah, we'll start there. What, yeah. what was kind of your reaction there?
3: Um, well, because of the source that it came to me, I never, I never doubted it, which was helpful mm-hmm. because I think a lot of folks who heard it through traditional media channels when it wasn't confirmed did doubt it. It was, you know, almost if it had been one of the programs around which there had been more rumor and conversation and. You know, say, the last 10 years, so whether it was, obviously it's not a Pac-12 school, but if BYU had been the program that uh, there were rumors around, or even uh, a program like Stanford, which has a very large athletic department, um, has women's lacrosse, and uh, has a large donor base, you know, I think that, it, it, that other folks' doubt around the veracity of Utah varsity lacrosse wouldn't have been as prevalent. Uh, I was, again, fortunate not to go about it that way. And so, you know, my immediate reaction was, Oh my God, they're going to be great. Um, there's no limitation on how good they can be, uh, when you're first to market in a market such as the Western time zone, um, you know, something that is that large and offers that unique of an opportunity and a proposition. And, you know, because of the way I follow college athletics and, you know, I, I, think, I might be a little bit more familiar than some with how many successful sports there are on campus at Utah. And so, you know, I'm able to then infer from that uh, how good uh, the athletic department is at supporting varsity athletics. Um, And then in conjunction, I had also uh, visited Park City um, like that February, you know, so I was only a couple months removed from, you know, driving past Rice Eccles Stadium. That's the name of the stadium, right? Rice Eccles? Yeah. yeah. And being like, this is one of the coolest stadiums I've ever seen in terms of the way that it's positioned within the campus, you know, within the city of Salt Lake. Um, and so when I heard it, I again, it was just like, this is this is going to be huge. They're going to be, uh, you know, not to set the expectations too high, but they're going to be really, really good. And it's not going to take very long uh, because so much about what they offer is unique. Um, and I think that, you know, I quickly moved on to what some of the challenges are uh you know are go we're going to be and have proven to be um and I think uh you know scheduling and and conference affiliation represent you know probably if not the biggest then one of the biggest certainly more so than recruiting and exposure um the the I was like well they it's gonna require the right candidate the the right guy to lead the job and uh and you know that kind of brings us back to coach holman
2: yeah absolutely you know uh coach Coach holman brought on uh you know obviously uh you know he tells a story about how he uh he called marcus and marcus said of course i mean uh you know and then he tells the story about getting will manny you know they were going to talk he called him on a thursday they were going to kind of touch base again on the next monday but then friday will called uh, the coach and said i'm in you know and so it didn't didn't take long, and then they kind of had to convince uh, Coach Gittleman to, to leave Southern California, which isn't easy. You know, Southern California is a beautiful spot, but then then bring him in as as sort of the staff getting assembled. You know, what are what are some of the thoughts, maybe you know that you're thinking, or or kind of in the lacrosse community, like, oh man, you know, this is a powerhouse staff. What the, what were some of the things you were hearing, or saw yourself?
3: Well, obviously, I've already shared my thought on on Marcus. Um, you know, I think Will. I was really impressed by what he and and the rest of the staff were able to do in their time at Wagner. And, and, you know, he had not been – he had been one of the independent variables that had helped that program go from perennially winning roughly one game per season to winning seven or eight games, uh, you know, during the time that he was there. And that helped me firm my opinion – uh, in conjunction with, you know, he always struck me as a coach um, in terms of his demeanor. You know, I think guys that have played for Greg Canella that have gone on to be college coaches um, are cut from a similar cloth, uh, and and so you know, I was optimistic about uh, what he could do and what he could bring to the staff. And as far as Adam is concerned, um, you know, I've, I've I've got a long relationship with him as well, and um, I had two reactions in terms of why I thought it made sense and was a good fit. Number one. He'd had the most experience with recruiting during his tenure at Harvard. And while recruiting at Harvard is not difficult because it's, you know, a premier institution globally, it does represent challenges. I mean, immediately a good percentage of the candidate pool is ineligible for consideration from an academic standpoint. So you got to navigate that. You know, and I would say that... uh, I would I would say something similar about recruiting at Utah in the sense that it won't be difficult. You know, it is the westernmost program. It is one of now I believe 13 FBS programs. So there's a lot about it that is unique. Obviously, the financial component is something that uh, has been commented upon, and I think is very powerful. I don't know a ton about the admission standards, but as a state school, I would assume uh, that there aren't a you know a significant percentage of the lacrosse potential players who who can't get in, um, if not with some help. Uh, But that being said, um, you know, as any uh, member of anybody who's recruited to Air Force or Denver will tell you, you know, geography can be a limitation. And so, you know, I I immediately said Adam's going to help this group kind of navigate, you know, what that dynamic is like in terms of having so many assets at your disposal, but having a couple challenges that you have to overcome. Um, and then in addition to that, he's also you know, going to help as a guy who has familiarity and experience with the MCLA. So immediately I thought, all right, all three of these additions you know, make really good sense. Um, I think that the only other reaction beyond that that I had was they're young. You know, There isn't that normal hierarchy of, of experience uh, that you typically see on college coaching staffs. Um, but because there was so much work that needed to be done, um, and because you know Brian himself had not been a Division One men's head coach, um, I was like, well, this is you know an appropriate dynamic given how much learning by doing is going to occur, and they're going to have a great time. And one of the other things that was really meaningful, um, and and this is something that I might be overstepping my bounds on because I'm not as familiar with the culture of Utah and the culture of the University of Utah, but. One of the things that seemed really important... Well, there were two things about Brian that seemed really important. The first was um, because of his professional career as a, uh, you know, working in finance and being an entrepreneur, I felt like he was uniquely well-qualified to handle the organizational tasks of building a program, as well as, I guess, at that point, you know, handling the process, the administrative review process uh, that ultimately led to adding the program. And then secondly you know because of the you know kind of cultural dynamic of Utah um while he's not mormon he is you know ardent in his faith and i felt like a head coach who you know is outward in his um about his religion and in his statement of of the importance of faith i was like wow this is a really uh good fit you know for all of those reasons and I feel like uh, the assistance as I kind of laid out helped to complement all of those aspects as well
2: yeah that's a great point Terry I'd, I'd never um, I never thought about that but but you're right you know I think coach woman does bring uh, you know the experience to kind of you know you mentioned it earlier be a startup we're more or less a startup team um, and, and he has kind of that passion and that vision for it and can do things that are required day to day, but then also see the long term. you know? Um, and then, and then you're right. Being a man of faith does help, uh, in, in this community. I, and I've personally had lots of conversations with him about religion and, um, I know our players appreciate it as well because he, he can speak to, he can speak to everyone, you know, no matter what uh, situation you've been in in your life, he can speak to it. And, and I think that's one of his, one of his strengths and one of his passions. Um, that uh, anything else you want to mention about uh, sort of Utah going to division one uh, any, any other tidbits you might know or, or some annoying those lines?
3: I mean nothing I know definitively <laughs> I will say <laughs> okay. I think I think it's gonna be another really uh, interesting data point on the transition from uh, MCLA to Division One, obviously Michigan is is one there that folks have uh, pointed to, and I think it'll be helpful to have an additional data point. I think it'll be really interesting to see how that comes to fruition with respect to um, uh, how that comes to fruition with respect to the end of this season, right? So you know where Michigan had had an extended run of dominance through the MCLA, you know as we spoke about earlier, that this is a Utah team that's that's taking you know, quick, substantial steps forward. And so I think, um, you know, that'll be a, another interesting aspect to the historical point of view on the competition between, the level of competition between MCLA and uh, and NCAA Division One. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, I'm an advocate for the notion of a lacrosse-specific conference that Utah joins uh, with a couple of the current Division I independents and a couple of folks that are currently in other conferences as a stopgap solution. Um, and I think it could be a really, really positive thing for the sport. You know, And I say this as someone who grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, um, and understands the role of the Great Western Lacrosse League in advancing the, uh, the story and the history of lacrosse, uh, particularly in that part of the country, um, it you know, shameless plug here, anybody who picks up the May issue of the magazine, the one with Ben Reeves and uh, Sam Apuzzo on the cover, will see a story that I wrote about the 10-year anniversary of the 2008 GWL tournament in which there was this really rare confluence of events where Denver, Ohio State, Notre Dame all uh, entered that final weekend of the season in contention for an NCAA tournament spot, but without any expectation that all three teams were going to get in. And then because their records were so good and they got that benefit of playing their conference tournament, their RPIs took such a bump that it became impossible to leave any of them out. And those three teams making it to the tournament in one season was a watershed moment for, I guess everything about the sport in that part of the country. Certainly, you know, Denver's development, obviously we've seen what Notre Dame and Ohio state have done in the interceding 10 years as well. So, um, I would say that I can envision something similar, um, you know, with the likes of uh, with with the likes of Cleveland State and uh, Bellarmine, Air Force, Detroit Mercy, um, and a couple others that either are forthcoming or need a conference home.
2: Sure, yeah, definitely, definitely fun to think about uh, what what that conference could look like and and the importance of that. and, and I think you're right. I think it is important to to get into a conference, uh, you know, sooner than later. (laughs) And I know that's on, uh, coach Holman's radar. Um, a a couple of quick questions that are are sort of related to this one is, uh, you mentioned your, your conversation with Larry Scott and he was very, uh, passionate about the the women's pac 12 conference. Uh, I I talked to a lot of people in the community and, and they sort of point to schools that have women's teams as kind of favorites in their mind to add men's teams. Do you feel that? <clears throat> excuse me. Do you feel that having a women's team helps the men's? You know, helps the school look at men's lacrosse, or, or do you think they're totally different? And so they're totally different in that way. Or, you know, what I mean. What do you think? Having a women's team actually helps the the future of a men's team.
3: I think it's a net neutral because there are positives and negatives. Um, you know, the positive is awareness of the sport. Another positive is facility availability. Um, although sometimes that facility is shared with another sport, and it can actually you know, be a be a detriment or a hindrance. Um okay. you know, I think that those kind of represent the two largest positives. I think that um the negative is uh you can't add women's lacrosse to offset the title nine impact of adding men's lacrosse. Um so yeah I, I I would consider it a net a net neutral.
2: Fair enough. I like it. <laughs> and Earlier this year, you you gave a presentation at the industry summit. Uh, you know, back in January, and you you had David Neelamman come on as a guest. Yeah. Uh, what, what what have your conversations been with him, and and sort of what you know? How do you see him in sort of the bigger picture, not only in Utah but sort of across in the West?
3: I, I mean, some of the things that I said about Brian will apply to David as well. I mean, I think more than anything else, what uh, impacts me when he. Speaks is how clear his entrepreneurial and financial point of view inform his opinions. And he is a very bold person in the claims and, and things that he says. And he's really high energy and really enthusiastic and i think that those types of things are infectious it's very easy to understand how someone can be as successful as he has been in a lot of different facets of his life because of all of those attributes but when he talks when he talks from the context of being a leader for the sport you know it's clear that there are a lot of motivating factors that you know might fall even beyond the scope of of just being a lacrosse fan i mean you know it's it's interesting for me to consider that Seth Nealman was originally committed to Loyola and decided to attend Utah for the reasons that he did and the role that lacrosse has played in his life. You know, we're very familiar with New Canaan High School, very familiar with his club team. So feel like, understand overall the way in which that story might unfold. And obviously I'm also very familiar with Loyola. And so um, I'm getting a little bit far afield, but I'll bring it back around to say that um, the desire to, you know, create a men's lacrosse team at utah that included the opportunity for his son to play for the team is only a certain threshold like there's there's stuff beyond that that includes continually increasing the experience of playing lacrosse at utah which includes having the opportunity to play against southern cal and stanford and it, ha- it includes you know having uh, uh, inappropriate venue for, you know, the team and the women's soccer team to play in. Um, and it includes, you know, having a tremendous fan experience from a spectator standpoint. It includes, you know, great communication group that helps tell the story of the team. And it includes building a member base like the one that I described at the top. So I think that holistic point of view to what can be done beyond simply saying, now we have a team is attributable to you know both brian as i said in terms of like his organizational point of view as well as david in terms of um you know the resources at his disposal and bringing that in to i guess the next threshold of how do we take this thing that's already like a 9 out of 10 and make it an 11 out of 10
2: yeah i I couldn't agree more you know you get around david and, and brian together and uh there's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of knowledge being passed around, and, and it's contagious, like you said.
3: I haven't had that um, experience, and it sounds pretty daunting. <laughs> it can be exhausting. That's true. <clears throat>
2: um, we, next time, uh, next time you're out here, we'll get you together with them. No doubt. <laughs>
3: let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, you know, I want to know where you're from. What's what's your origin story? Um, I'm assuming you played the cross. I did. yeah. So I'm originally from Cleveland, yeah. Ohio. I went to a high school called St. Ignatius. Uh, when I was growing up, there was no youth lacrosse in Cleveland, um, so I didn't start playing for an organized team until ninth grade. I got introduced to the sport when I was in second grade, though, because my brother, who was eight years older than me, um, or I guess six grades older than me, uh, played as a freshman. And then by the time um, you know he was a junior and senior in high school, I was the ball boy and the water boy and his team. So I spent middle school throwing uh, a lacrosse ball off my garage door Uh, my brother was a goalie. Um, and, uh, as a result, I was a goalie. (laughs) Um, and it's funny because so much of my career now is informed by the experiences that I had. The school that I went to, I played high school football and lacrosse. The, The school that I went to was a great football program. I, you know, uh, multiple NFL teammates. Um, I drove Brian Hoyer to school, for example. Um, The lacrosse experience was, was very different in the sense that, you know, a handful of my football teammates did play lacrosse. Um, and so, you know, we were pretty good athletically. Um, we were very good as a lacrosse team, uh, my sophomore year, less good as a junior, less good as a senior. And so it was really helpful to be able to contrast those two experiences. And, you know, now my job, well, so just to finish the biographical details, I, I ended up going to Loyola college in Maryland, um, and the first I, I, I walked in the student newspaper in the middle of the year just looking for an activity because I wasn't playing college sport and uh, nobody else surprisingly uh, knew anything about lacrosse so I was immediately tasked with covering the team for our weekly newspaper um, the first game that I covered I, I sat next to John Gelati it was Loyal versus Notre Dame in the spring of 2004 um, and then four years later he ended up hiring me uh, to work at inside lacrosse um, but I think that the high school playing experience has helped inform my ability to tell stories around the sport, having kind of known both ends of the success spectrum. I think, like a lot of people who really fall in love with lacrosse, the kind of natural beauty of the game and the mechanics of how the the game works from a tactical and X's and O's and skills standpoint always appealed to me. Um, you know at some point in my life I want to coach uh, unfortunately I'm too busy in the spring to do that now um, but when I was a player you know I would like come home after every practice and take notes on you know what we did what we would have done from a practice plan standpoint if I were in charge and then you know draw up like oh, I think this guy's being utilized in the wrong way I think this guy you know he this guy's got good change of direction at x but he's playing midfield. Either we need to invert him more or we need to switch him to our ex-attackman. You know, those are the types of things as a 16-, 17-year-old that uh, I was obsessed with. And uh, if you're not coaching, really the only other place to find an outlet for that is analyzing. Um, And so in addition to a lot of other uh, responsibilities at Inside Lacrosse, you know, that is how I spend a lot of my time. Um, So I've been here for, um, I guess now, 11 years, and uh, started, spent the first seven or eight uh, exclusively in the editorial side, Um, and in the last three years have taken over as publisher, which requires, you know, I haven't been able to totally give up my editorial responsibility and passion, um, but now I'm also responsible for you know, the kind of overseeing the, the business unit as a whole. We're based in Baltimore. We're 20 people, five departments. So, you know, there's a lot more than just managing the website and the magazine uh, that goes on on a daily basis. And, uh, and it's my responsibility, whether it's, you know, helping with our sales support, you know, advising our technology development team, working with our finance and HR group. Um, you know, all, all of that is involved uh, in what I do every day when I show up. That's, uh, that's incredible. You know,
2: um, the, 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 point that stood out to me in your bio is that, uh, you got your start by going to your student paper and noticing they weren't covering lacrosse. That's, uh, that's exactly how I got into covering lacrosse as well. I, I was a student at the university of Utah and the daily Utah Chronicle wasn't covering it. So I went in and said the same thing. Hey, I'll cover the lacrosse team. And they said, okay. Yep. Uh, the, the difference was, is that, you know, it was an MCLA team and, and John Giuliani wasn't coming out the MCLA games. In Utah, so
3: <laughs> Otherwise,
2: yeah, the sliding
3: doors moment right there.
2: There you go. Um, talk about talk about your day. You know, like so. So, I'm a big fan of your podcast with Quint on Friday. Um, and Thank I I me. listen to that podcast and go, "How does he know all this?" Like, <laughs> and so the only thing I can the only thing I can conclude is that you just watch a ton of lacrosse. And and you know, I, I mentioned it before we started the podcast, but you tweeted out a picture the other day where you have three screens going? Is, is that, I mean, is that the majority of your time is watching games or what sort of, what is a day to day or what does a week to week look like for you? And, and how do you consume all this and how do you remember it all?
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'll start with a couple comments. I don't know how I remember what I remember. Um, and I don't remember as much as I would like, and I don't have the opportunity to watch as much as I would like. Um, although my wife would probably disagree with me on that last comment. Um, I think a lot of the way that I consume lacrosse is, is kind of through passive osmosis. It's, it's, you know, one of the things that uh, we did when I took over as um, publisher was mount two TVs on the wall and, and we have this communal space in our office. And one of the things that I try to, do uh, more so in season than in off season, but you know, come in on Mondays and Tuesdays and and sit at that communal table and just have uh, replays of games that are on the Watch ESPN app running all day. Um, and then you know, when you kind of move beyond that, uh, I try to identify blind spots in my knowledge base um, and then try to actively um, fill those by appointment viewing for a particular game and. And also try to get to games. You know, one of the things that can be a temptation in this job is how easy it is to use the excuse of, well, somebody needs to, you know, manage the social media or manage the scoreboard or whatever else. Like my time is better spent behind a computer on my couch, whether it's on a Tuesday afternoon or a Friday afternoon or Saturday. And if you fall into that trap too frequently, you don't get that infusion or reminder of why you love this so much because there's nothing like being at a game on a beautiful afternoon to remind you of oh, okay this is it you know the smell the conversations that you have with folks that you've never met before uh you know the sound of everything you know the sounds of the game um something that i can find very intoxicating uh whether you know i can identify the difference between whether a check hit a glove or uh hit an arm pad um and and you know these are the types of things that can get lost if you only consume via a screen of some variety so i don't have a consistent day-to-day i tend to just from a work standpoint um i work at home in the mornings a lot uh, come in like mid to late morning, and then I tend to stay later than a lot of the folks on our staff. Um, for a variety of reasons, one of them that's most important is you know I focus a lot better. Uh, and particularly if I have anything that I need to write, uh, I need to be focused. I I focus a lot better at home. There are fewer distractions. Um, such as you know a game that I just put on watch ESPN. So maybe I'm a victim of my own uh choices there. Um, but uh. You know, we have weekly kind of standing meetings, as most offices do, Um, and sometimes they're meant to talk about latest injury news, and sometimes they're meant to talk about what ad contracts we have to fill this week. Um, So it really does kind of run the gamut that way. Um, But I would say, by and large, you know, my uh, my 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 day to day and week to week is really inconsistent, Um, and uh, it would be hard to to describe it without just you know kind of tweeting out a photo of my calendar.
2: Sure. Hey, I, I expect that. Oh well. Yeah, I don't know. There might have to be some
3: redaction that comes in there. Some top secret meetings go. going on. There you go. Um, uh so? It sounds like it sounds like one of your favorite parts of the job is, is
2: going to a game. No question. Right? Uh, what uh, what what is your least favorite part of, of the position, or, or what do you, I guess, dread the most, if, if you can say it publicly? Yeah. <laughs>
3: Well, I think Kyle Devitt has done a really nice job on his weekly podcast of informing folks of the arduous nature of, of uh, populating our scoreboard, which is, you know, one of our most popular and valuable assets of our website. So that's, uh, you know, clearly a uh, a uh, th- that is a part of the job that is a necessary evil. Um, the least favorite part of the job is the stress in the moment before you answer an incoming phone call when you know the person calling you is going to be upset for whatever reason. Um, and uh, and trust me, the reasons, the reasons can be many. Um, but whether it's, you reported something that somebody didn't want reported, or, you know, you didn't select this player for this opportunity, or, you know, this financial result didn't reach this projection, um, or, you know, this advertiser's expectation wasn't met. You know, all of these are, are calls that, that come in with, with some regularity. And uh, and that moment right before you click accept uh, is, is probably the worst part of the job.
2: Sure. Makes sense. Um, who, who's someone in the sport that uh, maybe you haven't met with or, or haven't interacted with that you want to?
3: That's an interesting question. So Kyle Harrison tweeted a photo of his uh, afternoon with Jim Brown. And I have met and shaken hands with Jim, but I have not sat down and spoken to him and being from Cleveland, I think, uh, there's, you know, a lot there, uh, that I would like to discuss. That being said, um, his story and his voice have been shared, uh, so widely that I don't think that that would rise to the top of the list for me. I think it would be more so I want to, I want to have an opportunity to, to spend time with him so that I can tell my dad about it. Um, you know, my dad graduated from high school in 1964, which I think was, you know, one of the, I think that was the last championship year. Um, that, that Jen had led the Browns to. So that would be a great opportunity. But like I said, I mean, you know, there's not, um, not as much there as far as new, d- new, new information or, or new detail to be discovered. I, I wouldn't think, um, so, you know, kind of advancing from beyond that. I don't know that there's a historical figure, so to speak, um, that I would like to talk to that I haven't had an opportunity to spend as much time with. It's definitely one of the assets of the job. Um, so really it's kind of a news of the day, you know, that's a, that's a, that's an answer that would probably change on the basis of what is the most interesting thing that's going on in the, in the, in the world of lacrosse right now. And I think today the answer is, uh, the president of the CLA. I'm really interested in what's going on with the Canadian lacrosse association and their ongoing conversations with, uh, the, the players, as to whether or not the 2018 men's team will go to Israel and to participate in the World Championships, I think that there's a lot of doubt and consternation surrounding that. So, you know that that would probably be today's conversation that I would be interested in having.
2: I love it. Uh, that's, that's a great point. What I guess along those lines, what's been your favorite interview that you've done in your in your 11 years at of, not of the Cross? What do you look back on and say, "Man, I can really, I really love talking to this person," or "I really love writing this story."
3: Well, I can answer that in a couple ways. I mean, you know, one thing that we recently accomplished that I was really proud of was uh, this conversation that we had with Kyle Harrison that we posted an excerpt of about um, a month ago now uh, in which he talked about uh, his origin story with lacrosse and how he views the, you know, prospect of his children playing. Um, And it really exposed his, you know... uh, I don't know, consternation or or, uh, lack of clarity around the racial dynamics within the sport. Um, But that, you know, is is top of mind as something that we recently did. Um, A lot of a lot of the magazine stuff that we accomplished uh, early in my tenure stands out as being formative. Um you know, and and really, you know, to the idea of, of I can kind of summarize some of my favorite things that I've done through tweeting a picture, um, you know, the walls of my office uh, have covers and interior spreads um, from 10 of my favorite features, uh, 10 or 11 of my favorite features that we've done um, in my tenure and uh, and that's a good way to summarize it. I think you know, one guy that I'll shout out, not for a particular, instance, but because I routinely enjoy whenever I have an opportunity to talk with him is Matt Strebel, um, you know, the former Princeton lacrosse player who went on to a tremendous MLL and international career. Um, and it's because he and I, uh, you know, see life and lacrosse very similarly in a lot of ways. Um, and we love basketball. We love TV. Uh, so, you know, when you ask and in an in interview that that jumps out immediately, that's that's one uh, that I think deserves mention uh, among all, all of the all the ones that I've I've been fortunate to conduct.
2: Sure. Um, yeah, I, I love it. I'm sure you've got a uh, got a bunch of, of different stories and, and been to a couple of different places that you love. Um, in, anything else you want to add uh, before we jump into sort of the rapid fire question?
3: Let's do it. Rapid fire. Hey. Okay. <laughs> What's uh what has been your favorite storyline this year? <sighs> um Well, let me start by saying I'm glad that we're not talking about the shot clock. Um because <laughs> yeah. you know, rule mechanics uh is is a least favorite storyline. And we've got an emerging one here with this uh you know, grind it out face-off uh, situation, like whether it should be an artificial time limit on the face-off or anything like that. Um, I think my favorite storyline is Boston College women's team showing that their Final Four run in 2017 was not a fluke and doing it without what may be the best player in women's lacrosse in Kenzie Kent. Um, as far as just... Not defying the odds because that implies that their odds of doing this were not very high. It's just how hard it is to do for a program like that that took a significant, you know, Ohio State is a great example. You know, you take a significant step forward and in in the most recent episode of the season 2018, he mentioned specifically Nick Myers did of how difficult it is to handle success um, and how hard it is to follow up a program high watermark with an equivalent season the following year. And, you know, Boston college is saying, well, I'll take the final four and potentially raise you as they have yet to lose this season.
2: Sure. Uh, you know, uh, the Boston college women's team has a, has a special place for Utah. There's a, a Utah native Utah on the team, Hannah Hyatt. Uh, she's a junior midfielder there from park city. So, Definitely, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of eyes watching from Utah on that Boston college women's team. Um, you, you may have documented this somewhere, uh, but, uh, who's your favorite for the NCAA champions
3: this year? Oof. Um, I've been very heavy on the Yale train, uh, since the fall, I went up to their last practice of fall ball. And, you know, obviously they've been knocking on the door, uh, and those knocks have gotten louder since 2011, 2013. Um, and I, I I I had been posting my um, top twenty and then stopped because there was uh, waning interest it seemed. Um, but the last three weeks I've had uh, Yale number two, despite their loss to Bucknell at midweek, um, and then I bumped them up to number one this week. And I feel like uh, I feel vindicated uh, on the basis of their performance okay. against Albany. Um, you know, there are a lot of reasons that I'm bullish on them. Uh, but you know, Ben Reeves being potentially the best player in college lacrosse is certainly one of them.
2: Absolutely. What's uh, that was, that was my doorbell, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> uh, what uh, what books are you reading and uh, what podcasts are you listening to? Ooh,
3: okay. Um, I'm, I'm currently not in the middle of any books. Um, so I will leave that one, uh, I'll leave that one aside. The podcasts that I'm reading. I'm a huge NBA fan. So I listen to a lot of NBA podcasts. I think Zach Lowe is one of the best analysts in all of sports media. And I listen to his podcast with great, uh, great glee. Um, and I also listen to, uh, the ESPN, uh, NBA podcast, particularly when Brian Windhorst is a participant. Cause I like his approach, um, from a reporter slash analyst standpoint. Um, moving on to other you know kind of realms um, I do I do tend to listen you know and stick to sports podcasts so um, men and Blazers is one as a Premier League fan uh, that I enjoy but tend to only listen uh, when Tottenham my, my favorite team has had a good results in the week prior Um you know, and, and out of season, I tend to my, my NFL or college football consumption tends to diminish as well. So, you know, right now I would say it's it's those sports podcasts that are at the top of my list. Uh, Men and Blazers was the first podcast I ever listened to. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. An appropriate
3: introduction, no doubt. Unfortunately, I can't yeah, bring too. the same British accent that uh, I'm sure <laughs> captivated you.
2: Yeah, those two. Are the, uh, For those listening, Men and Men Blazers is a, a soccer podcast. Uh, they talk about the, the English. Uh, they, well, I guess they talk about everything all, yep. all the weeks, and uh, they live in America. But um, just a just a great podcast if you're a soccer fan. Uh, if you're uh, if you're building a team with people from Utah, do you go Bubba Fairman or Casey Rose. Well,
3: I would go Fairman from an eligibility standpoint. He's got more years left. Sure. Um, from a skill set standpoint. It's so close, man. I would really say, um, I, you know Fairman has a little bit more you know he's taller, so I think that I think he's taller at least so so you know some of that uh, kind of natural athleticism, and he's a little bit more of a dual threat uh, to to feed in the score, um, whereas Casey is a little bit more I think of an all around versatile midfielder, um, so it's really kind of uh, six one half dozen the other. Um, if you're going to put me on the spot, I'll stick with Bubba for for the reasons I laid out: the eligibility and the the dual threat scoring and the and the D one the more prototypical D one body.
2: Sure. Well, for those listening, Bubba Fairman's a uh, Utah native. Plays at Maryland. Casey Rose, a Utah native. Plays at Rutgers. Um, what's uh, what's your favorite venue to watch a game? You know, if, if you see this venue on the schedule, you you have to be there.
3: Yeah. Um the variety is so significant, um, because you can, you can, you can answer that on the basis of amenities. Um, you know, in which case loyal arises to the top of the list. Um, (laughs) you know, you can also, uh, answer on the basis of environment and vibe that is created. I'm, I'm so partial to, uh, seating on all four sides, you know, particularly if it's a bowl, um, one of the best venues I've ever seen a game from is the University of San Diego, the Torero Stadium. I'm dying for them to add men's lacrosse of varsity sports to give me a reason to go back out there. Um, and uh, but but as far as, you know, the place that I think for me Homewood Field is just so meaningful, you know, between the history, uh, the types of crowds they get, um, I think uh, you know it's a it's a it's a very rote answer, but uh, the home of John's Hopkins lacrosse is is one of the best.
2: Uh, I know a couple guys here that would agree. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly so. Um, that's uh, that's it for the rapid fire questions. And, and anything else you want to mention? Anything else you want to talk about?
3: Tim, you're a great interviewer. That's all I want to. That's all I want to mention. You did a fantastic <laughs> job.
2: Thanks, Terry. I appreciate that. Uh, where, can, uh, where can people find you on social media?
3: Yeah, so obviously a lot of what I write ends up in InsideLacrosse.com or in the magazine. Uh, we appreciate every subscriber, so if you've got any prospective listeners out there that hadn't picked up a subscription after we put you on the cover of the magazine last year, uh, please please uh, go ahead and do that. You can follow me on Twitter at Foy. T-E-R-E-N-C-E-F-O-Y. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, you can check us out inside the cross podcasts. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all those other spots. No SoundCloud. I'm actually thinking about creating my own SoundCloud account just so I can upload all the post game audio that I record and never do anything with. But uh, but for the time being, you can catch us on inside the cross podcasts.
2: Awesome. I, I will say to the fans out there that uh, Terry and Quinn's podcast that they do every Friday is, is a must. Um, Especially as, as Utah kind of transitions into to the Division One ranks, I can't wait for you guys to start talking about uh, about the youth. So,
3: looking forward to that. Of course, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks, Terry. I appreciate it.
0: Was
1: amazing. hundred and ten
0: yard goal. <laughs> oh my goodness. Quentin Swinney, Faith Lutheran, Nevada.
2: Oh my gosh. <laughs>